team and the music today on the Word of God. That is the focus of our message this morning. If you have your Bible, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, a little letter toward the end of the New Testament written by the disciple Peter uh, later in his life as he became a mighty force in the kingdom of God. Uh, today, we're going to take a look at my view of the Bible. Over the last few weeks, we've been working on our worldview, understanding that our vision is impaired. We come into this world with sin in our lives, and because of that sin, it impairs our vision to see things as they really are. And just like we go to the optometrist and they have us stand 20 feet from that chart and they check our visual acuity and they diagnose us as to whether we have 20-20 vision or 20-40 vision or whatever it may be, uh, in the same sense, God wants us to have our vision corrected uh, to His perfect 20-20 vision. And last week we saw my view of God, and that's where it all begins. He really is the foundation stone and the keystone to worldview. It begins and ends with Him, and if we don't have Him in the right place, nothing else is going to be correct. Uh, next in this building of our worldview, we come to the next fundamental block, which is the Word of God. If we don't have a right view of the Word of God, then we're going to have a wrong view uh, or a misinformed view or a skewed view about everything else. And so in Peter's second letter, he is writing knowing that his time is not long and he wants to give them some things that will outlive him. He, while he is in the flesh, he says, I'm doing my very best to stir you up, to remind you, to focus your vision where it should be. But I, I know I'm going to leave, and after I'm gone, I want you to be able to still have this world view. And so we pick up there, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well, that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we count it a privilege to be in your house and to be in your presence. We confess that you are the one and true living God, that there is absolutely none other. And Father, we come today acknowledging that the Bible is your word, your divine revelation recorded for us. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone in this auditorium today who does not have that rock-solid conviction 
that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, uh, indestructible Word of God. I pray that today their eyes would be opened and that they would see it as it is, the Word of God that lives and abides forever. God, help me to do an adequate job of explaining this text the way you meant it to be understood. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I love the Apostle Peter. Now, he's not the guy I identify most with in Scripture, but I love him because he is so accessible, right? I mean, he is not some dude who's been on a pedestal every time we've seen him that we think we can't uh, attain to his level. We have seen his warts. We've seen his mistakes. I mean, God sovereignly uh, recorded those in the Gospels for us. We, we know that he doesn't have a perfect track record, but we also know that Jesus said some things to him, like, after thou art converted, you will strengthen the brethren. And then we see him after the resurrection and ascension becoming the main spokesman of the church, preaching the inaugural message of the resurrection in Acts chapter 2, being the, the, the main leader in the church at Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts, so that when he writes these letters, we have all of that in vision, and we understand that he's not a hypocrite, he's a real guy who has lived life and not always gotten it right, but God has changed him and given him a message that will help us. Well, Peter, who had his own vision problems at times as a disciple of Jesus, is writing this letter to help other Christians see more clearly. You know, when I think about Peter's vision problems, it's always easier to see others' problems than it is ours, isn't it? Uh, and when I think about his, I, I, think about, uh, I think about the time that Jesus had to say to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, Jesus had just uh, explained that he is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be crucified. And Peter was absolutely shocked and was having none of it. And he literally, physically takes Jesus and turns him around and says, This is not going to happen. And Jesus has to look him right in the eye and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. What you savor is what you desire is not of God. It is of men. And what I see is that Peter didn't have the right view there, did he? He didn't see it the way God saw it. He didn't see it the way Jesus saw it. I think again uh, in Matthew 18 when Jesus is teaching on for forgiveness and, and Peter feels like he's made some spiritual gains and some spiritual grounds and he speaks up and he says, how many times should I forgive my brother if he trespasses me? Seven times? I mean, I can just see him proud as a Sunday school child quoting all the books of the Bible. I mean, I really nailed this. I mean, this is like twice as much as what anybody else would forgive. And Jesus has to correct his vision again. He says, not till seven times, but seven times 70. You're not even close, Peter. You're not even in the ballpark. You, your eyesight is so bad spiritually you need correction. And then, of course, on that night before Christ is crucified and the Lord significantly lays aside his rabbi's garment, his teacher's garment, and he, and he puts on the, the towel of a servant and he goes about to do the lowliest job of the lowest slave in the house and to wash the feet of his disciples. And he gets to Peter and Peter's vision is off once again. He thinks that he's got it right. He thinks that he is spiritually motivated, and he says, you will not wash my feet. 
And Jesus has to correct him again. He says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, I, you, you're not mine. And then Peter uh, so humorously swings the pendulum all the way to the other place. Okay, okay. Uh, I went from saying you won't wash my feet at all, but if that's what's going to happen, then don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands. Wash my head. I mean, wash me all over. And Jesus says, look, you, you don't need that. All you need is your feet washed because you have been washed already, spiritually speaking. And so we see that and we understand there were times that Peter had his own vision problems. And he knows what it is to have his vision spiritually corrected and to go from a wrong worldview, even though the intention was good, to be brought into a right worldview. And he wants to do the same for every other Christian. And so God allows him to write this little letter, 1 Peter and then 2 Peter. We know what his intentions are because the very first thing that he says and the very last thing that he says is that you should grow in, in faith and knowledge. And he understands that we all begin this Christian life the same way as newly born babes in Christ, fresh out of our sin, uh, skewed in our vision, needing uh, that development and that growth. And so he says, here's the, here's the long and the short of the Christian life grow from beginning to end. You've you got to recognize in the beginning you need growth. You need some things to change. And, and God is the one who can do that through his word. And you need to also realize that you'll never get to a point on planet earth where you say i've got it i've arrived i'm perfect i don't need any more growth at all he says no from beginning to end you and i need god to work upon us we need him to grow us and to develop us and to correct our vision because he knows that from experience if they don't it will affect their vision negatively it will affect their worldview for instance, if you look back with me at verse 9 in 1 Peter chapter 1, he, he, he tells them exactly what will happen if they don't grow and get their vision corrected. He says in 1 Peter 1, 9, But he that lacketh these things is what? Is that a sight word? Is that referring to sight? And cannot what? See afar off. Again, reference to sight. He that liketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Notice the allusion to sight. Blind and cannot see afar off. Uh, this is consistent with our study of vision having to do with perception and world view. We know that he is not making a reference to physical sight. We know that he is not saying if you don't add to your faith all of these things, then you're literally going to go blind. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if your parents lied to you like my parents lied to me. But do you remember they used to tell you that if you sat too close to the TV, it would ruin your eyes? You're going to ruin your eyes. You're going to go blind. That's not what Peter's saying. Peter's not like, hey, if you don't do these things, God's going to strike you down with blindness. You're going to lose your sight. We know that it's not referencing physical sight. So it must have to do with our perception, our perception of reality, our perception of morality, and our perception of eternity. It, it is our worldview. What he is saying is, Christian, if you don't get into the Word, and if you don't grow, 
your worldview will be off. What do I mean by that when I say our perception of reality? Well, it depends on what your worldview is. Either you see reality, you either see this world as evolving and getting better or devolving and getting worse. Those are two opposite worldviews, right? Uh, the uh, the uh, ev evolutionary atheist is going to say that the world started off in chaos and in simplicity and that ever since that beginning, it has been evolving upward so that mankind has gotten better and better and better. That is one worldview. But do you understand the biblical worldview teaches the devolution of man, not the evolution of man? That is, God created mankind in perfection without sin, but man and woman sinned in the Garden of Eden and invited sin in. And from there, that lofty position, mankind devolved into depravity and sin. You know what makes the difference in your worldview about the reality of evolving or devolving? It is what you believe about this book. How about morality? Our worldview has to do with our perception of morality. One worldview says that morality is fixed, that it is firm, that there are black and white lines as to what is right, what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral. You and I would look to the Bible and the Ten Commandments and we'd say this is a fixed standard of morality. It does not change. Murder is still murder. Adultery is still adultery. Theft is still theft. Idolatry is still idolatry. Lying is still lying. Coveting is still coveting. And they are wrong, they are immoral, and they are sin. But do you understand that there is another worldview that says morality is fluid? And what may be wrong for you is not necessarily wrong for somebody else. And it sounds very neutral and intellectually avant-garde to say, well, this is my moral code, but I don't impose it upon you. Well, first of all, it's not my moral code. It is the Creator's moral code. And I either accept it or reject it. And if I believe that it is the Creator's moral code, then I believe it's His code for all mankind, not just for those who choose it. And so my worldview is going to determine whether I see morality as being fixed or fluid. It's also going to affect how I see eternity. Is it consequential or is it inconsequential? You see, the person who does not know God, who does not believe in eternity, does not believe in heaven or hell, says that eternity is inconsequential. There is no such thing. When you die, you die. That's the end. Kaput, zero. The screen goes black. Lights are out. Nothing else happens. This life is all there is. But for a believer, for a Christian person who has a biblical worldview, we say eternity is consequential. It has the highest consequences. Depending upon what you do with Christ in this life determines whether or not you will spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. And there is no reverse once you cross that line into eternity. That's worldview. Do you understand? That is worldview. That is how we view the world. And we're either viewing it through the eyes of Scripture, the lens of Scripture, or we are not. And so the apostles' aim 
is to correct our vision. As believers, as people who have been indoctrinated by the world, educated by the world, uh, infected by sin, we need some vision correction. And like an optometrist, he has examined the eyes, he has diagnosed the defects in vision, and now he has a prescription for corrective lenses. That corrective lens that they need and we need is the Bible. It is the divinely revealed vision of God. And so that is the corrective lens that's being prescribed to you and I today. But that begs the question. I can stand up and tell you, hey, this book is unlike any other book. You ought to believe this book is a book from God. But it begs the question, how do we know that the Bible gives us the right view? How do we know that this book is not tainted? How do we know that this book has survived all these centuries without men redacting it or editing it or rewriting it? Well, Peter addresses that in these verses. And so what I want us to do this morning is just walk through this text and pull out from these verses what he is saying so that we get the right view of the Bible and in turn get a right view of the world. The very first thing that he says in verse 16 is, hey, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. And so there's an acknowledgement there that there is a right way, there is a wrong way, and that there is sometimes a wrong way that seems right, that people have craftily and sophisticatedly it developed worldviews and arguments that people have followed. And he says, let me tell you from the start, I'm aware of that. And that is not what we have done. We have not followed. That word followed there in the original uh, means to, to blindly uh, go down a well-worn path. Right? You ever been out in the woods somewhere and got turned around and be like, I, I'm not sure where to go. And you happen to come across a path that's well-worn. You're like, well... There's a path, must lead to somewhere. And a lot of times, that's how people make decisions, not just when they're lost in the woods, but when they're forming their worldview in their academic endeavors in high school and in university. And Peter says, watch, let me tell you what we haven't done. We haven't just said, look, there's a lot of people that's walked down that path. That's a well-worn path. We're going to follow that path. Remember, Jesus warned us about the broad way that leads to destruction and the narrow path that leads to life everlasting. Peter says, we have not followed, cunningly devised. The word uh, there is where we get our word sophism, and it means a cleverly constructed argument on false premises. It sounds really good. It is intellectual, and in its context, it seems to make sense. He says, but that is not what Christianity is. That is not what the teaching of the Word of God is. It is not a cunningly devised, watch, fable. Fable is when it has reached the, the, the level of myth or mythology or legend. You know, there's a lot of that in religion today. There's a lot of mythology among certain religious traditions that people don't go back and say, does this come from the Bible? They just, they just uh, see it as being a part of the myth or the legend or the ritual of their religion, and they buy into it. And Peter says, that's not how you choose your worldview. That's not how you choose your path. That's not how we did it. That's not how 
I did it. In contrast, he goes on to say this, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. There's another one of those sight words again, isn't it? He throws that in. He doesn't just say we were witnesses, but he says we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What he's talking about is he's saying, I have seen it with my own eyes. I have verified it. I have uh, personally examined it. I have had it revealed to me. And from his eyewitness perspective, he assures us that it is true and that it is real. Do you know what Jesus didn't give us? He didn't give us any video footage, did he? There's no video footage, right? Nowadays, we want to concern, confirm something. We want to find the video footage. I mean, if you, want to, if you want to debunk somebody's myth, if you want to call them on their lie, then all you need is the video, and we play it back. And we've got video on our school buses, and we've got video in, in, our, in our schools. We've got video in every business, right, because we want to take that as an assured. But do you know Jesus didn't give us any video? Did you know that Jesus purposefully didn't give us one rendering, one picture, one painting, one drawing, one sketch of himself? There's not one on record. Every picture of Jesus you've ever seen was formed in the imagination of the artist. Every picture. Every picture in every Sunday school lesson, every picture you've ever seen in any church, any cathedral, anywhere else is literally the figment of the artist's imagination. Why? Because Jesus did not leave us that record. You know what Jesus chose to do? Have eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. He called people around him who were able to walk with him and to witness what he did. Because that is the most powerful witness that you can have. Even if there were a picture that had been rendered of Jesus at that time, we understand that it could be skewed by the perspective or the ability of the artist. There's so many things that could go with that, but the eyewitness is somebody who gives an account, and he didn't give us just one eyewitness. Notice Peter says that we were eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that there were over 500 people who saw Jesus after his crucifixion, risen from the dead. And Paul says, at the time of my writing, over half of them are alive. If you want to verify this, there are eyewitnesses. And so Peter speaks with the authority of an eyewitness. And he says, hey, I was there. I was there. And what he references is what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. It is from Matthew chapter 17 when Peter and John and James went up on the mountain with Jesus. And the Bible says that Jesus was transfigured and that his garment began to, to, to shine with the brightness above the sun. And, and, and that they heard a voice from heaven speaking saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Peter was there. And he was with James and John. I'll tell you what it is. It's what John is referring to in John 1.14 when he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. 
as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter says, I was there on the mountain. I heard the voice of God speak from heaven and confirm that Jesus was his only begotten Son. Now, that's not what is most astounding. And that really is not the weight of authority that Peter is relying on. He is just calling that into witness. And he's submitting that and he's saying, let me remind you, I'm an eyewitness. I'm writing to you from an eyewitness perspective. I'm one of the first disciples that he called. I was with him the entire three and a half years. I witnessed him after the resurrection. I was there on the morning the tomb was found empty. I was there. I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm an eyewitness. But he is using that to set up his very next statement, which is found in verse 19, we all have also a more sure word of prophecy. Well, how can it be more sure than that? I mean, Peter, you are an eyewitness. You are one of the guys who literally saw Jesus glorified and heard the voice of God. And Peter says, let me tell you something. There is a more sure word of prophecy than that. You see, because the danger with an eyewitness, is that their memory can go bad. I'm learning that in my mid-40s. There are times that I start to tell stories, and I, I can't remember parts of the detail. Or somebody else will tell me a story that I didn't remember until they start talking about it. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, that, that's right. Now I remember. And what I know uh, from living with all you old people is that that's not just... That, I love you. That, that's not just unique to me. That's unique to humanity. So even an eyewitness has a danger of losing some of the details or forgetting those details as time goes on. And Peter says, look, God ensured that that wouldn't happen by giving us a more sure word of Prophecy. What is that more sure word of prophecy? It is the scriptures. It is the record recorded in permanent writing. And so he reminds us that we don't have to just live and die on the apostles' accounts and that when they die that we're hopeless and wandering for the truth. He said God superintended and transmitted his divine truth from him to man and recorded it in writing so that you and I could have a document that is absolutely certain and sure without error, infallible, that we can trust wholeheartedly. In fact, he, he goes on to say this, it's a more sure word of prophecy that shines like a light in a dark place that you would do well to take heed to until the day dawns and the day star arises in your heart. There's such imagery in this. He is describing the Word of God entering our life like a single beam of light in a dark place. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in one of those situations. I've done construction in my life. And, and when I was younger on the construction cruise, it, you, I, you always got either sent on the roof or under the house. Low man on the totem pole is one of the two. They both, they both had uh, their negatives. 
But you know, there have been times when you're under a house and your flashlight goes out and there's no light to be seen. And it's amazing how dark it can be. And as you give yourself a moment and you let your eyes adjust, all of a sudden you can see a beam of light coming from somewhere. And when you go to make your way out, you just follow that beam of light until you emerge into the daylight or to the source that is there. And Peter says, that's how it is, folks. You and I are not going to automatically see it all at once. It's going to be like a beam of light that is shining into our dark world. We're, we're going to barely perceive it at first because we are, we are so dialed in and in love with our own worldview that all of a sudden the Word of God says something It's like a light that either we want to shield our eyes from or we say, wait a minute, that's going to lead me somewhere. And he says, you would do well, I would do well, if we would recognize the light of God's Word and begin to follow that light beam until it dawns on us, until it arises in our heart and soul in full glory to where we see the glowing beauty and truth of the Word of God and we say, this is all God's Word. You know how it starts to shine in? It starts to shine in by the gospel. A lot of people know about the Bible, and they don't know about that Genesis stuff. I mean, you know, I, I, I think the Bible's the Word of God. I know Grandma and Granddaddy believed it, but, you know, my science teacher really explained that away to me and said that every religion has their own myth about how the world came into existence. And, and then he explained to me how evolutionary matter came into existence and how it began to evolve and all the stages in that. And, and so a person who has that, they hear the gospel and they see the light of God and they want to follow, they want to get saved. They say, that sounds true, but they may not believe the entirety of the Bible. They may not believe the, the creation record, but if they will follow the light that they have and they begin to walk with God and follow the gospel light and they get saved and begin to read this book, then in time the Holy Spirit of God throws back the shades that have veiled their heart in disbelief and the glory of the truth of God's Word begins to shine ever so brightly. And the longer you and I walk with the Lord in this Word, the brighter it comes. And we realize it is all true from beginning to end. When it speaks about science, when it speaks about history, when it speaks about relationships, when it speaks about morality, when it speaks about eternity, it is all true. And so Peter says it's been transmitted from God. Here's a few things as we, we are, have to finish our time together. It's authorship. If I'm going to view the Bible, I have to understand that this is not just a collection of writings of men, but that it is of divine authorship. He uses a statement here, and he says, Knowing this first, primary, fundamental to the rest, is that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. In any word, other words, it did not originate with man or with men, but it originated with God. God is the divine author, and he used some 40 penmen over 1,500 years to write down what he wanted them to say. And I'm telling you, if anybody does an honest study of this book, 
It is undeniable that there is a cohesiveness and a consistency from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 that would be impossible if it's just the manufacturer of men. Because you realize that many of these men wrote independently of one another and had no idea what the other was writing. But because the same God was giving them the word when they were put side by side, all of a sudden you say, it's all talking about the same thing. It's the unfolding drama of redemption. It is God's love for mankind. It is Jesus coming to die for us. We find it in Genesis. We find it in Psalms. We find it in Isaiah. We find it in Matthew. It is consistent all the way through. Why? Because there is one author. It is God. It's no private interpretation. But then we also see inspiration. He says there in verse 21, Holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Moved by the Holy Ghost. This is a supernatural function of God. It is not talking about creative inspiration where you see a beautiful sunrise and you're filled with some melodic line and you write it down in beautiful poetic form. That is not inspiration that we're talking about in the Bible. Inspiration in the Bible is when the Holy Spirit of God actually animates the writer to write down what he wants to right yes he uses that writer's intelligence he uses that writer's vocabulary he uses uh, that writer's experiences but the truth comes from God and guides that writer to write it down the way God wants it written down the only other time I love this the only other time that phrase is used moved by the Holy Ghost is in Acts chapter 27 y'all remember that when we were on the ship with Paul in Acts chapter 27 and Paul had said to him, don't sail, don't sail. The weather's going to get bad, and they want to listen to him. And so they get out there on the Mediterranean Sea, and all of a sudden, they're at the mercy of the sea. They throw out anchor for two weeks. There's no wind blowing. All of a sudden, they get a little bit of wind blowing. They lift up anchor. They begin to go in, and then they hit a big storm. And the Bible says that they raise the sails, and they let her drive underneath the power of the wind. That's the same word, moved by the Holy Spirit. Just like that ship had its sails and had some structure, but it was the wind that was driving it and directing it where it was to go. God used these human penmen in their own words to be able to guide and direct them to say exactly what he wanted to say. And by the way, they didn't always fully understand what they were writing down. In 1 Peter, Peter says the prophets even studied their own prophecy trying to discern when this was going to come about. And so inspiration is that supernatural act of God whereby the Holy Spirit speaks through these holy men of old and they write down what God wants to write down. And that brings us to that third one, and that's inscripturation. Inscripturation. Notice the word in verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Scripture, literally, it's, it, it's graphe, uh, where we get autograph or bibliography or autobiography. It, it means to write it down. And so God's inspiration, God spoke through those holy men of old, but the message was not just a verbal proclamation, but it was actually to be inscripturated. It was to be written down and preserved for all future generations. The writing of the word was superintended by God to ensure its inerrancy. So listen, 
I believe my view of the Bible is in the verbal, plenary inspiration of God. That means I believe every single word is inspired by God, and I believe all the parts of the Bible are inspired by God. And I believe that God has preserved His Word according to Psalm 12, 6 and 7, uh, like silver refined in a fire. Uh, thy words are pure words, and that they will last every generation. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18 that He didn't come to destroy the law, but that he came to fulfill it and that not one jot or tittle of the law would fail but it would all be fulfilled Peter said in 1st Peter that it is the Word of God and it's not like the grass or the flower that fades away but it lives and abides forever and so the scripture the inscripturation of this revelation is where you and I get our assurance that we have the truth of God that he has preserved it for you and I. Well, that's all fine and good, but you and I really want to know this. How does it affect me? That sounds good, Justin, that God spoke and these holy men of old wrote it down and that we have this anomaly, this, this book, this, this relic that we can have in our house and in our home and we can say, you know, I believe that book is different than any other book, but how does it affect me? And for that, we need to trace the canonical line over to 2 Timothy where we find a companion text of Scripture that I just want to read to you and we will be finished. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Now listen if you recognize any of these words. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Isn't that just what we were talking about? Inspiration, Scripture. And he goes on to say this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's good. It's expedient. It's for your benefit. It's profitable for doctrine. That's what's right. For reproof. That's what's wrong. For correction, that's how to get it right. For instruction in righteousness, that's how to keep it right. And so God has inspired His Word, not so that you and I have a nice evangelical accessory to carry to church with us, but so that we have a book that will tell us what's right, point out to us what's wrong, show us how to get it right, and then teach us how to keep it right in our life so that you and I don't have to be blindly wandering through life like a pinball in a pin machine, bouncing off the bumpers trying to make our way to the goal, but that you and I have a divinely inspired book that shows us exactly what the world is and how to navigate our way through it. Because he goes on to say this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished to all good works. The Word of God has a perfecting effect on your life and my life. If somebody has 20-20 vision, we say they have perfect vision. If they don't, we say it's imperfect. Hey, friend, you and I have imperfect vision when we get saved, and we need something that will give us perfect vision and it is the Bible that will do that the man of God is made perfect watch this truly furnished 
That's a compound of that word perfect. It means perfect all the way, completely perfect, totally perfect, perfect in every way. You and I don't have to have blind spots in our worldview if we will inform it by the Word of God. And the last thing that he says there is that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You see, God doesn't want you and I just to be scholars. He doesn't want us just to be academicians. He doesn't want us just simply to have a head full of knowledge that does nothing but pontificate. He actually gave us his word to perfect our worldview so that we can then go and do his work. I read this week that vision problems cost American businesses $8 billion annually in lost productivity and medical expenses. And I just can't help but wonder how much does it cost the church? How much does my vision problems cost the church? How much does your vision problems? Hey, we're not talking physical vision. We're talking spiritual vision. And if you're sitting there in your pew and this is the first time you've opened up your Bible in a week, let me tell you, honey, you've got vision problems. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be the optometrist. And I'm telling you, wearing your glasses is the only way you're going to make it through life and do the work that God wants you to do. Would you bow with me? Should we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment? I want you to think about this. I want you to invite God's Holy Spirit to repeat this over and over to you again this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow. I don't want you to go out of here and forget this. You see, because just like visiting the eye doctor, it does us no good just simply to get the test done to tell us that our vision is bad and not to do anything about it. This is the corrective lens that God wants you to use. And I promise you, if you'll just get into God's Word and start reading a little every single day, He will be faithful to perform a LASIK-like surgery on your spiritual eyes to help you to see the world as He sees it. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for the work that it has done and is doing in my life. I pray, like Peter, that everybody who hears this would come into that same experience. I pray it for my children and for their generation. I pray it for my peers and for our generation. I pray it for my parents and for that generation. Oh God, we realize that if we lack these things, we are blind and we cannot see afar off, and the productivity of your church suffers. So God, help us to get serious about this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.